Welcome to episode 24. This is one of our night sky sessions and uh, Shane and I are back to talk about some of the goings on in the nighttime sky, even though that, uh, well, we really haven't been able to see much here during the monsoon Saskatchewan season, unless, unless you're able to see something. I haven't really seen much of a break in the clouds there, Shane. Not much. Uh, just some naked ice stuff in the backyard when I take the dog out for her final bathroom break before bed, you know, watching Cygnus and Lyra. Uh, kind of gain a, a nice height in the sky uh, in the east, but really that's it. No telescopes, no binoculars. How about yeah, you? I mean, when, yeah, I mean, we finally get through all that wind and it's yeah. just, now we're being punished with uh, with rain showers now. Like you said, there was one evening where it cleared off, but, but you know, that evening, everything was soaking, ringing wet. Yeah. Like yeah. it was just soaking. So uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. So have a few things coming up. I mean, maybe we can, you know, hopefully get out here, but, uh, you know, recording this uh, a little bit early today is actually uh, the solstice. Yeah. How about that? I, <laughs> you know, we moved this to accommodate some uh, Father's Day get togethers because uh, normally we record this on the Sunday Yeah. and hey, lined up for the solstice. Lined up for the solstice, completely unintentional. And, and you know, what's great about the solstice? I don't. It's it's unobservable anyway, and and we're here under very very thick clouds. So, but traditionally, or or I guess historically, um, you know, and when I when I moved here uh, just over a decade ago, I did read about the historical uh, weather phenomena here in uh, in southern Saskatchewan, and June is the wet month. I think something like forty or sixty percent of the precipitation that we receive in this province lands uh, during the middle three weeks of June. Well, that is lining up with what we're experiencing right now. <laughs> and yeah, and I mean, you know, just my years here have kind of, have kind of bore that out. You might get some wet periods from time to time, uh, but like pretty consistently this June month, which is great because we're in that perpetual twilight we've talked about before and uh, really not much observing to be had uh, for yeah. us anyway, unfortunately. So yeah. One of the things also I like about the solstice as a, as a, you know, a visual astronomer uh, is that it marks the turning of the duration of the days. They're no longer growing. They'll start shrinking. And the best part of that is, you know, our, our nights are going to start getting longer, which is great for observing. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is exciting. And uh, I, I just heard this morning that the uh, Grasslands National Park is going to be open for camping. Yeah, June 29th, I think, right? Yeah, <laughs> with some some pretty heavy restrictions and signage and blah, 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 and all, all that kind of jazz. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, I'm going to give them a ring uh, this weekend and see what uh, will be kind of range. And, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see where we can go from from there. But I'm definitely excited to, to get down there. I know you probably would be as well. Oh, very much so. Uh, definitely for new moon in July and August, uh, provided that the weather cooperates, as long as it's not raining or blowing 90 kilometers an hour. Uh, I am game. I want to be there to do some observing. Yeah, I think I'm going to go down at least a couple nights and stay uh, inside somewhere, rent a, rent a place and uh, kind of try. I tried, I made some plans before they uh, had anything uh, official because that wasn't until today and I started getting concerned that I just wouldn't get any dark sky observing in since they were uh, not permitting any uh, any camping in the park so I thought well I'll book in somewhere so so I've done that that now and and uh, plan to stick to to that plan and 
you know, hopefully uh, our plans can, can align sooner than later. But it's like, it is challenging to go down there at the best of times and to kind of arrange for everybody to kind of land there on the same date. Um, and we've been very, very successful at it. Um, but this is like one of those extra monkey wrenches, which is proving a little bit uh, challenging, I suppose. Yeah, well, it'll, uh, you know, fingers crossed that it works out. The, the interesting thing too about grasslands, and we've seen this happen so many times, is the forecast may not look favorable. It might look, you know, partly cloudy or, or other things that would get in the way of observing. But there's something magical about this, like that grasslands location that it just, it often clears up and you often end up with really good nights of observing. It's, it's quite rare for us to get skunked out and not have any good observing over the course of a couple evenings. Yeah, the only, the only thing that's ever really skunked us there has been uh, forest fire smoke. Yeah, yeah, um, forest fires. Yeah. yeah, which, which, although, you know, in, in a way it's, it's kind of weather, uh, and sort of one of those unfortunate things that, uh, perhaps, perhaps those could be prevented a little bit more than, than what we're all doing now. But, uh, you know, we'll see, hopefully with the, the rains that we're having now, things are getting soaked in the West, um, when we can't really observe anyway. And then hopefully in the coming weeks, when we are, are now able to get out to the dark, dark skies, we're able to do that. Um, and, uh, and one of any forest fires to deal with and hopefully some, some clear skies will line up. Eh? Yeah, exactly. All right. So Monday we've got, we've got some, uh, some stuff we can observe this coming week. Uh, even, uh, even in our, in our limited time that we have with the nights being, uh, so short as far as darkness goes on Monday, the 22nd, we have the slim 2d old crescent moon. And uh, it's going to be way down in the glow of sunset. So probably going to need binoculars. So get your image stabilized binoculars out. Have you used those much for like trying to catch thin crescents? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure I have. Uh, they're fantastic for that. Uh, really any, like a, any binoculars great on the moon, but those, the ones that I have are 12 times and that is fantastic on the moon. Yeah, that should, that should really pull it in uh, this time. But, you know, for people who are further south, you probably won't have too much difficulty. But you and I being here at about 50 degrees north latitude, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're battling quite a bit of, uh, of the evening sky glow from, from the sunset uh, all night right now. So mm -hmm. let's see. Wednesday, um, if you look, now the moon's going to be pretty easy on, on Wednesday evening, even for us, I think, uh, as, it, as it waxes towards uh, full um, and it's going to be paired very close with uh, Regulus in Leo. So it's sort of like a last chance to see uh, that part of Leo before, before it descends into, uh, into the sunset and then disappears uh, behind the sun. But one of the things I, I do with my astronomy class is I always try to give them the dates when the moon and a star are going to be lined up together. Um, because people that are learning the night sky for the first time, they can use that moon as a guide, you know, uh, and it's just really good practice. You know, the moon is really easy to find and, and everybody, you know, typically can locate it and see it unless it's really low down. And then, uh, and then when it is beside a bright star, that ID is the bright star. And then kind of as the nights go forward, um, you can, uh, you can sort of slowly learn a few more stars and constellations. And then, uh, over the run of a, of a year or several years, you can, you can really branch out from those, those stars and constellations to the, the ones next door. The moon doesn't necessarily pass through. Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people have been pretty successful at, uh, at learning the night sky that way. Yeah, that's a great tip. 
the, the first object that I located all by myself with my uh, eight inch uh, Skywatcher Dobsonian, my first real telescope. And those are nice telescopes. I just want to say, Oh yeah, I did. I started in this uh, just a few years, maybe even only a couple years before you basically at the same time, but just after I started, Skywatcher kind of came out with these or, or otherwise I, I just didn't know about them, but I never heard tell of them until uh, two or three years after I started in the hobby. And when those came out, they were so much better than what we were all buying just a few years before. It was, it was really, really dramatic, the difference. They were smaller, lighter. The optics were really good. And they remain really good in those Skywatcher uh, telescopes. Yeah, you know, an eight-inch Skywatcher like that, it can easily provide, <clears throat> excuse me, provide you a lifetime of observing. Absolutely. It's, it's the perfect aperture. Um, it's, it's light enough that you can move it around fairly easily. Um, it doesn't take a lot of space up uh, in your vehicle, you know, if you want to take it out to a dark sky. Um, but it's enough aperture that you can really pull in some faint objects uh, and, and really start to see some structure and, and shape to them. And uh, yeah, great telescope. Expensive. Yeah, not that expensive either. I, I don't know what they run these days. Um, but they're, you know, they're in like just, you know, this few hundred dollars. And I know that's a lot of money to people. I mean, it's a lot of money to me. Um, it's not inexpensive. But as far as telescopes go, um, this is where what I consider to be affordable, high quality telescopes come into play. And I think for uh, well under $1,000, you can get one of these and get all the eyepieces and books that you're ever really going to need. And I mean, honestly, once you buy that stuff, like that's it, there's no sort of entry fee apart from uh, if, if you're going to go and drive somewhere to, to do astronomy or if you're going to join a club, uh, but typically even, even those kind of things are, are reasonably affordable. Um, you're not necessarily having to buy new things uh, every week. And plus like, you know, as, as listeners will, I can attest to like, we will share stuff around, like you've borrowed some stuff for me. I, I have an eyepiece of yours right now. And you know, that, that kind of continues on. I've had students that have gone and bought these sky watchers and go observing together and share their own equipment. And, you know, it really, uh, really is a, a great, a great set. Yeah, it is. And I think you can get that sky watcher for around 500 Canadian. Okay. And I think, I think they usually come with a couple of uh, plossal eyepieces, a finder, basically everything you need to get started um, and, and to keep enjoying it for a long time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if people are like, we're not sponsored or anything, I mean, no. it'd be great, be great if, be great if we did. I mean, if people are in, are in Canada, or they're looking for uh, good reputable dealers. We have one out here in Western Canada, which is all-star telescope. Uh, they are excellent to deal with. I uh, can't recommend them well enough. They come out to the star party every year. Uh, Ken, the guy who runs it and, and his spouse, they, they come there with some big tents and you know, they're, they're, they're supporting the local amateur astronomy community and, uh, you know, I know he does a lot of other sessions and that, and, you know, helps to teach people the night sky and, uh, you know, really nice and uh, honorable company. Uh, and then out east, of course, is, is the great Astronomy Plus now, um, mm -hmm. as Stefan's calling his company with, uh, uh, with a slight change in name from Lila Nature. Um, you know, being from Eastern Canada, that's, of course, where I ended up ordering most of my stuff from getting started. And, and, uh, and just because of the selection, um, not knocking anybody else, but I, I believe Stefan probably has the best selection uh, in Canada, you know, but those are both very, very upstanding and reputable dealers. Still, still waiting on my mound from Stefan though. 
<laughs> and maybe I'll throw out one piece too about those uh, eight-inch Dubsonians. I had a Skywatcher, but Orion makes one that's really good. I think Mead makes one that's really good, and I think there's probably a few others out there too. So, um, you know, as long as you're buying from one of those reputable dealers, uh, you're going to end up with a, a good telescope. Yeah, and there's lots in the states, like OPT yeah. bought lots from High Point yeah. Scientific. There, there's lots of great ones, um, but just being in Canada, of course. We have to deal with that over the border kind of stuff. And uh, I know like in, in recently chatting with Stefan, he was saying how that is definitely a challenge, but he takes care of that challenge and uh, has, uh, you know, some sort of broker or something that, that helps at the border. So kind of can save you a few dollars when you're in Canada to actually buy from uh, a Canadian distributor. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't, or if you're looking for a particular piece of gear. I know sometimes OPT is pretty good about finding some sort of custom piece of gear I'm looking for and uh, always really good to to deal with. And then of course, I've got to kind of sort some of that brokerage stuff out on my end, but uh, usually they're they're pretty handy and actually help me out with that too. So it's not really that big a deal, but uh, yeah. So what did you look at with that? What was the first thing you looked at with that eight inch? It was the moon. Um, I was woefully underprepared. I I've always had an interest in astronomy. So uh, I, I'd finally got my first real job, you know, starting my career. So making a little extra money. Line cook I, at the local Harvey's? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, actually, it was a, a technical support representative at the local telecommunications company. All right. Good stuff. And um, saved up some money, ordered the Skywatcher, received it, set it up, and then looked at it probably for about a month in my living room wondering what the heck do I do with this thing? <laughs> um, so finally, I, I was out on my patio. Uh, my, my uh, not wife at the time, but in, you know, eventually became my wife. Uh, we lived in an apartment uh, at that time. And uh, so I was out on the patio one evening and saw um, a nearly full moon out. Uh, that inspired me to finally pull out the Skywatcher um, and try to locate the moon, which you know, for the first time is actually a little easier said than done. Now, once you gain a little more experience using a telescope, it's, you know, it's quite simple to point and, and find the objects you want to, to look at. But yeah, it was the moon. And I, you know, I think it was one of our recent podcasts, I talked about the first time I saw Saturn, which was my first view through the telescope um, ever, and, and how that image is just burned into my memory. Well, that first time with my sky watcher looking at the moon, so that's the first time I've seen the moon through a telescope, that image is still burned into my memory as well. I mm -hmm. couldn't believe the detail, um, the amount of craters and ridges and uh, contours, like it just blew my mind away with what I was able to see through that telescope. And then that really lit the fire uh, to continue in this hobby and, and grow. Yeah, the one thing with the moon is that, uh, well, my first telescope was also a, an eight inch uh, F6 dog, but uh, honestly, not, I'm, I'm not gonna get into brands or anything. It wasn't as good as the Skywatchers um, that we have now. And uh, I was surprised even with that telescope, how, uh, how good it was. So I, my, my previous view of the moon had been through a 16 inch Cassegrain at, at, on top of the university. It's actually uh, three stories above where I would sleep at night. So uh, it was pretty convenient just to pop up there when my uh, fellow students were doing their labs and, and do some viewing through it. So I was kind of familiar with what the moon looked like through a telescope. And then when I got my own, I was like, whoa, it, you know, 
that huge, you know, many thousands of dollar sophisticated instrument in this giant dome on a building, um, you know, really gave a, about a similar view to, to my, to my eight inch. Like it really wasn't uh, that different. Of course the resolution was better, but you know, the seeing wasn't as good in that spot as you can get to with an eight inch. And uh, yeah, it, it was surprising how close the views really were. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. First thing I ever looked at though was Mars. Oh yeah. Okay. So that's what I've been observing. Technically that's what I've been observing the longest. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So there's the summer triangle, you know, and I, I kind of just sort of stuck in some, some notes around the summer triangle. So uh, what, what is the summer triangle, Shane? Well, it's three of the brighter stars uh, in the summer sky that just happen to form a, uh, kind of a triangle, um, big. now depending, it's huge. Yeah, it's a big part of the sky. Uh, it's uh, Deneb in Cygnus, Altair in Aquila, and Vega in Lyra. Yeah. Um, now, what's, um, what's significant about the Summer Triangle? Because uh, you teach this a lot at your classes. I've been there when you talk about it. Yeah, so <clears throat> it helps, you know, you learn the, the night sky, like it helps you really navigate the nighttime sky and then... Uh, you know, as well, like it contains three of these uh, very bright, easy, easy to see constellations from the city and the Milky Way cuts right through it. So uh, when you do get out to, to a dark side or even from the city, if you kind of scan your, your binoculars through, through it, you're going to maybe be able to see some, some of the Milky Way even through, uh, through the light pollution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And from my backyard right now, Deneb and Vega are uh, nicely visible. Um, quite easy to spot even in the city because of how bright those stars are. They're, they're quite prominent. Now, if you look uh, just beside uh, the summer triangle, actually kind of maybe not quite beside it yet, but in the middle, there's a few of these smaller constellations. Now, the summer triangle itself, it's not a constellation. It's an asterism, which is just basically a grouping of stars. T technically speaking, a constellation is like a region of stars as defined in a 1932 charter by the International Astronomical Union. Uh, but, the, but the patterns we see um, in the sky, these are typically uh, just patterns of a constellation, you know, sort of a grouping of stars within a constellation boundary. But with the Summer Triangle, of course, it's crossing many different constellation boundaries, primarily Cygnus and uh, Lyra and, uh, and Aquila. But then within that, there's actually a few of these smaller constellations. There's uh, Volpecula, there's Sagitta, there's Delphinus, there's Aquiles. And then kind of if you add on Lyra and the water jar rising to the, to the southeast, um, these are really small constellations. And I just love these little constellations. So a few years ago, remember those, uh, I guess they're called like a constellation binocular that, that you had made up with the 3D printer? Yes, yep. And so they give like around a 20 or 25 degree field of view, very wide field of view. Well, with these binoculars, you can easily fit in several of these little constellations all at once. So it's, I, I always really enjoy kind of panning through these little constellations. But even with my seven by... 35s, like I can get most of uh, each of these constellations and like the Sajida, I think I can get the whole constellation in my 7x35s and most of the other ones will will come pretty close to fitting. You can kind of just sort of pan around a little and that's a lot of fun, even from the city uh, at this time of year, like as the rising, if we do get a night that's not too too wet, 
uh, I'll go out and, and kind of pan through those. Have you spent much time in these, these sort of little wonders? Not, not so much from like just observing the constellations, but uh, so, like Sajida, uh, I always go there every year and two of my favorite objects are near Sajida in between that and Cygnus. Um, the famous M27 uh, Dumbbell Nebula. Um, for anybody that has not observed this through a telescope, um, the reason why I really like it is, um, you know, a lot of the objects that we'll look at, sometimes it's hard to distinguish uh, the actual shape um, as it looks in photographs. But this is one of those objects where you can really start to pull off like the kind of the two ends to it that look a little bit larger than say in the middle and you, you start to envision the actual, you know, a dumbbell. And it's a great nebula. It's quite large. It's quite bright. Um, telescopes of almost any aperture uh, reveal something there. Uh, so I love looking at that. And then very close is the coat hanger uh, open cluster, NGC 6802. And that's another great binocular object or wide field uh, in a telescope. It's, uh, is, it's great. Is the, is the coat hanger an actual cluster? I thought it was just an alignment of stars. There's, there is a oh, cluster okay. on one end. But uh, oh, yeah, you know what? Um, but I mean, don't like, don't think I'm grilling yeah. here live on the, on the radio kind of thing, because you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is many of these clusters that were once thought not to be clusters. Like there's, there's some of the Ruprecht uh, clusters, like the one down there in uh, Sagittarius that I, that I wrote a paper on. And, uh, and they had thought that that wasn't a cluster. And then uh, when some of the Penn State uh, uh, astrophysicists pointed the, you know, the big binocular telescope on Mount Graham at it, they discovered that it, that it was a cluster. So, so I wasn't sure. I mean, maybe, maybe that will be discovered to be a cluster. Well, let me read something here to you because I made a mistake. So NGC 6802 is the small cluster that's almost, it's right beside the coat hanger. Yeah, it's sort of off one of the sides of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the coat hanger is actually Colander 399. Yeah, and it's so the the right up here in Sky Safari says uh, I don't know if I'm getting this guy's name right, but Brocki, Brocky, yeah, yeah, uh, Brocki's cluster is a large cluster of about three dozen stars spread over one degree. It is commonly known as the coat hanger because of the pattern formed by its ten brightest stars, which is a coat hanger kind of upside down. Uh, one of the brighter stars has an orange color that contrasts with the bluish tone of the other stars. So I don't know, uh, maybe I'll do a little more reading on this one to find out what other uh, atlases or guides say about yeah, 399. I've done a fair bit of research on this one and, and I, I actually have quite a few sketches on it that I've done uh, naked eye uh, and through binoculars and, and small telescopes. So with my eye, I, I can see a couple of the brighter stars, but I still do get that coat hanger outline, even with unaided eye. Oh, wow. Uh, so, of course, this is from, you know, the darkest site we, we have accessible to us. And then, um, <coughs> excuse me, this, this cluster is pretty interesting or, or grouping. And, you know, maybe I should say nebulae uh, because it was, it was first noticed by a guy named Al-Sufi uh, in or around the, like the 900 uh, AD mark or just after. And uh, he was a Persian astronomer. And of course, he's he's operating about 700 years, uh, or just a little under, before the uh, the telescopes pointed at the nighttime sky. 
Um, and so that, that's a pretty interesting feat that he actually discovered this uh, long before that. The coat hanger? Yeah, yeah, he's, wow. he's actually credited with that. Now, there was, there was a time where, you know, and, and this is sort of my interpretation of the, the history of astronomy, where it kind of fell out of favor to, to have this there, um, very likely because, uh, you know, they, they were, you know, unfortunately burning people like Bruno at the stake for, for talking about uh, things changing up there and maybe new things being found. So it seems like it kind of, in a way, went away, but it was sort of still in the, uh, the annals of, uh, of astronomical history. Uh, and then when Bronchi came along, because I think he was observing either in the late 1880s or early 1900s, um, and he kind of made up a, a list of, of a variety of, of clusters, and of course this, this was one, uh, but he is definitely not the original discoverer. And uh, Sufi actually drew uh, quite beautiful charts, um, you know, in uh, Arabic style and uh, quite gorgeous. So if you look up uh, al-Sufi and uh, star charts, uh, he created uh, what's called the Book of Fixed Stars, or, well, that, that's what he called it. But really what this was, um, and I may be just, just sort of misinterpreting it, um, but it really was an updated version of Ptolemy's Almagest, uh, which was based on Hipparchus, I think second century BC catalog. Um, and so that's kind of how like the sort of the early uh, workings of, of these star charts uh, sort of move forward through time. Um, but Al-Sufi was adding things. And the biggest thing that he did, and this is really, really important, is if, if you've ever looked at really old star charts, do you ever notice sometimes they're flip left to right? Make it very confusing to use on them. Do you ever see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason why they did that was uh, it's sort of a, an issue of perspective. So you know how if you have like, even like Google Maps, right? If you zoom out, you're gonna see that south is down, north is up typically, and like to the right, you're gonna have east, and to the left, you're gonna have west, okay? Okay. There's nothing that says that this is how you have to do it. This is just sort of, in many ways, like our Western way of, of looking at a map. And one of the other uh, sort of Western ways of, of looking at, at a map was, to think about the sky as this kind of zoomed out version of that, and that's why uh, it's reversed. Now, when you're actually looking down at a map, it, it's just kind of worked out, sort of fortunately, that uh, that things work pretty well that way, and, and we all kind of learn that in school or whatever. Um, but when we actually go and try to uh, use that on the night sky, because typically you're not you're not grabbing a map and then trying to navigate in such a way as much, but with the nighttime sky, you're you're often holding it there and then trying to look at the stars. Uh, and of course, if, if they were reversed, that makes a big barrier. Now, getting back to Al-Sufi, he actually flipped them uh, and correctly oriented them. Really? Uh, yeah, so that was uh, one of his contributions. It, it took quite a long time for that to, uh, to really catch on, not until about the uh, 1600s. Um, and a lot, of other, a lot of other charts were, were done in, in reverse even after that. But, uh, but definitely he kind of helped to kick uh, that off. And of course, the, the Persians were just phenomenal uh, astronomers, uh, despite not having uh, optical instruments at the time. Of course, nobody did. Anyway, sort of an interesting little little side trail onto the history of yeah. our charts and astronomy. Right. So. I enjoy your, your historical interludes occasionally <laughs> when, uh, when we're just talking here. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like that's one of my real interest areas, and that's one of the things that, that I teach in my classes. I'm actually going to teach a 
class over Zoom in uh, in August. It turns out I don't I don't know how people register yet, but it's through the University of Regina. Of course, I'm a volunteer educator, and uh, you know I I think they well I know they charge for it. I believe everything they they charge us goes towards helping uh, run the outreach facility. But it's really great because I don't have to do any of the overhead. I just show up and usually I show up in person. Sometimes you show up with me and help do a class and. This time that's going to be done all over Zoom for four weeks. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Cool. So we also have Jupiter and Saturn in the sky. They're they're fairly low. They're around 30 degrees up, about three fist lengths. Uh, and they're, they're sort of halfway up between uh, the horizon, at least for us anyway, and uh, and Altair, uh, about three fist lengths below Altair uh, as well. And then in the morning sky, we have Venus coming back. So I'm pretty excited about that. I was really enjoying uh, some Venus observing here in the uh, in the spring, and pretty excited to uh, to get my slightly larger telescope, hopefully running on a mount here uh, in the next few weeks. But really, by by the very end of June, uh, we're going to have it rising high enough in the morning sky, and then of course, once we get in July, uh, it's going to be high enough to actually uh, do some observing. So I'm really kind of fingers crossed that in the next three weeks, um, my tracking mount is is going to get here, and I'm going to be able to get on that. So exciting stuff yeah for sure and you know venus is something i would like a little more time with um you know we had some really a lot of fun observing it um but i really didn't get into trying different like different filters um until maybe my last one or two observations of venus and i'd like to spend some more time trying different colors uh, of filters to see if it changes the view and what i'm able to see with the with the different glass there yeah what uh, what color filters do you have? What are you thinking of trying? Well, all of them. Um, you know, I was doing some research, um, and like people were even using nebula filters on Venus, which was kind of surprising to me. Uh, but you know, it sounds like that light blue filter is a good one. Um, I think even dark blue, uh, greens. Um, I have that Bader contrast booster. You know, yeah, I'd like I, to give it I a bought one as well. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm try that. I have I have some of the Lumicon light blue filters. I got to say, even though the Lumicon filters are a little bit more expensive, they are absolutely killer as far as filters go. Like, not knocking anybody else that makes filters. I think that the Bader ones are pretty good too in my books. But as far as just straight color filters go, those Lumicon ones they are the best. They are pure optical glass, and the color rendering is is so nice on them. Like typically. When I use a color filter, eventually I kind of get annoyed and pull it out. Like, you know, once you kind of tease out whatever detail it is you're looking for, when I'm using those Lumicons, I'll just leave them in, like oftentimes for a whole evening of, of observing because they really don't change it that much. And they're so pale. Like I got the pale set, you can buy a pale set of four or five uh, one and a quarter filters. And I got that whole set and it is just a beautiful set of, of paler uh, colors. So with these smaller instruments, eight inch, you're getting big enough that you can use sort of the darker filters, but with anything like a six inch or smaller, like all, all my instruments are now anyway, um, using these paler uh, color filters are definitely uh, the way to go. Just, just beautiful. So, but I think you bought a couple of these other Bader color filters though, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I caught a, a business going out of sale or geez, a business going uh, out of business and having a kind of an inventory clearance sale. Um, so I ended up picking up the Bader light blue. Oh, gee, and I'm trying to think what the other colors are now. Um, 
they're upstairs. But uh, I, I ended up with three or four Bader filters and uh, one of the Lumicon greens. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to hear how they go. I, I've heard um, some fairly good things about the Bader filters. They're the only other ones that I've even thought about getting other than the Lumicon. Lumicon can be a little bit more difficult to uh, to get just depending, so uh, yeah. Ooh. Um, was there anything else in the nighttime sky that you were thinking of observing in the coming week or as things go forward here? Um, I'm really looking forward uh, to some lunar observing. Like to me, that's what June is all about. If you're doing, um, you know, any nighttime observing, you might as well look at the moon because it's bright and uh, because it's perpetual twilight, um, you might as well get your, your lunar time in. Uh, but this week I'm not going to work. I'm on vacation. So I'm hoping to get some solar observing done during the day as well. So, uh, the way it's been around here lately, mornings seem to be the best weather of the day. You know, the wind hasn't come or the rain hasn't come. So I'm hoping for some clear mornings to take a look at the sun. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, you know, to be honest, like I really find these, uh, very, uh, bright, uh, mornings really difficult like you know i come from a place that is much cloudier than here and where the sun doesn't rise quite as early and so usually i get to sleep in a little bit more just i think just my you know natural biological rhythms and i find like getting to this point pretty rough so I'm, i find like i'm I finally feel like i'm starting to come around but every year it's like a little bit of a bumpy road for uh for about five or six weeks for me anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is, it is tough to, uh, on me. It, uh, I'm not sad when July and August start to roll around for a little bit of relief in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, that's good, Shane. Well, uh, unless you have anything else to add, I think we were probably good to wrap it up there and we'll thank everybody for, uh, for listening. Really appreciate all the downloads that uh, people are making on the material that we're putting out there. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And if anybody, uh, wants to ask us a question or has suggestions for topics of future episodes that they'd like to hear about, uh, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Actual Astronomy and we monitor the account. So feel free to send us a, a message and let us know if you again have a question or have an idea for a future episode. Yeah, cool. I mean, we have, we have quite a few plans, so no pressure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Shane. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.